So today we actually have a bit of a treat, as we all know. Pastor Justin and Heather had their twin girls, so we want to thank God for that. They're born healthy. Praise God for that. And because, you know, Justin's doing all the work at home, you know, changing diapers, making a formula and stuff. He's not with us. So yeah, I pray for him. Because it's really hard for him. Heather's just chilling. Um, I hope he hears this. So because he's out, we actually have a treat. Pastor Joe, his father, will actually be sharing the word today. Pastor Joe, if you don't know, is an incredible man. God saved them at a very young age and used them powerfully in so many people's lives. Um, honestly, he's one of the main reasons I'm here. He's one of my spiritual fathers. I love you. You know that. Um, and I pray that God would speak through him today, that he would encourage your heart, um, that he would challenge you to, to love Jesus more. So without further ado, I'd like to invite you up. Bishop Joe. Well, it's a treat to be here. Um, every time they have a child, they're going to ask me to preach. So pray that they have five more so I could come here five times more. So we want to give a shout to L. Brooke and Lexi Skye. Let's give God a hand clap for them. Amazing. I love their middle names, Brooke and Skye. Wow. It's amazing. Um, a shout out to my friend Curtis who came with me today. He was my barber up until about six months ago and is a public school teacher. And he came with me today, so let's give him a shout out. Lovely family and all my friends here that I will connect with after this. So let's just pray. Lord, we thank you for the word of God, and we pray that you'd help us to understand that which will be spoken. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what I want to talk about is a summary of the book of Ephesians. It's probably my favorite New Testament book, except for the other books in the New Testament. <laughs> I love the whole Bible. And I want us to summarize certain portions of it, and we're going to talk about the glorious church. Someone say the glorious church. The glorious church. My objective today in this message is to help you understand how significant and unique the church is to the purpose of God. And while I'm speaking, there are a few questions I want you to ask yourself. Do I truly understand and appreciate the body of Christ? What are several reasons why the church is called glorious by the Apostle Paul? And last, what can I do to further support and help establish my local church? And so, as an intro, Paul the Apostle said in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, uh, the following, verse 25 to 27, he said, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he may present to himself a glorious church, 
without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and without blemish. Some other translations will say something like present the church to himself in splendor or present a radiant church, but in the original Greek, it's actually the word glorious. Furthermore, in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 14, Paul said this. He said that he called you, talking to the Thessalonian church, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Quite amazing. So these passages and many others show that God has called the church to participate in the glory of the Lord Jesus. And so many people have a low view of the church, a low view of the body of Christ. The word church can mean many, many different things. It connotes many different things because we have so many different versions of church in the last 2,000 years. So what we're talking about is the body of Christ, the true body of Christ, the ones that really do know the Lord and are the visible expression of the invisible Christ. That's why they're called his body. And what I want to talk to you about is what Paul was known for more than any other apostle. The apostles generally had a good handle on salvation. They understood the implications of the cross, of the death, burial, and resurrection. But there is nobody who had a revelation of the mystery of Christ in the church like Paul. That was the main thing that he wrote about, the main thing that he knew about. And to make it easy to wrap your brain around, I want us to have six, we're going to talk about six things, six reasons Paul connected the church to the word glory. And we're going to base it, as I said, on the book of Ephesians. And so, number one, how do you, you know, if something is important to you, don't you plan it out for a long time? Nowadays, the wedding planners, I wish I was a wedding planner. Oh, man, the money they make. They pay a lot of money for wedding planners on top of that for the wedding day. I wish people invested as much in their marriage as their wedding day, but that's another conversation. But it takes sometimes two years and sometimes a lot of money, 100000 or more, uh, 50000 is probably cheap nowadays, to plan out a wedding or the wedding day. And if somebody just said, well, you know, honey, I love you. Can we get married in an hour? Let's go to... Las Vegas or whatever, let's go to the justice of the peace, you probably wouldn't think that it was as important to that person unless there was some emergency or situation they couldn't control. Well, somebody had a shotgun, but that's another conversation. Um, usually, there's going to be some planning, some tender loving care involved in it. So there is planning. Someone say planning. Well, God thought so much about you as the body of Christ that he planned your existence and he planned for his church to come forth before time and space, before the world began. Ephesians chapter 1, it says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's time and space. That's the three-dimensional world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. And so the church, contrary to the opinion and writings of certain people, the church is not an afterthought 
because Israel rejected Jesus as the Messiah. The church was always in the plan and mind of God, and it took God multiple generations after he created the universe to bring forth the church, which means he put a lot of time, intentionality, and care into bringing her forth. So it's very, very powerful. So you were chosen before the world began, before God said, let there be light. He already knew who was going to be his bride, his body. Isn't that amazing? Powerful. Number two, there's more I could say, but I want to just summarize this book. A second reason why the church is called glorious is because the people he chose, he raised from spiritual death. He raised from spiritual death. Ephesians 2, it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We're skipping a bit here. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so the people he chose, he rose. That's amazing. God doesn't make bad people good. He makes dead people alive. Every one of us have a story of life from the dead. Every one of us were taken from darkness unto light. Every one of us have an amazing testimony, if you want to use that word. Every one of us have been taken from emotional bondage and darkness and dark places and addictions or different things in our life that we don't want to uh, talk about perhaps at times. But every one of us were slaves to sin and dead in our sins. You couldn't get any more lost than that. Do you know that it's impossible to be more lost than you were? There's nobody, no matter how they sin or how they've conducted their life, they can't be more lost than any of us. You can't get more lost than being dead. You're just a dead person. And Paul describes this. Other theologians, they call this original sin, which caused moral depravity that we were literally dead. In other words, we were unable to help ourselves, unable to do anything about our condition, unable even to repent unless the Spirit of God began to move upon our hearts. And so God's bride, the one that he calls the glorious church, are people who were once dead and are now alive. Isn't that amazing? So that means his Glory is revealed in every one of you because of the story that you have, because of the condition you were saved from, and because of the fact that one time you were blind and now you see, one time you are in darkness, now you're in light. It's a glorious church because of what he has done in our life in revealing his glory inside and through us. Isn't that amazing? Wow. I know where he took me from. I think David said I was saved at a young age. If you can consider 19 young, I don't know. But I was 19, professional rock musician. 
and I knew what it was like to have a lot of friends. I was on my way to making a lot of money and a lot of fame and all of that that goes along with it. But inside, I knew I was lost. Inside, I knew that there was nothing in this world that could satisfy me. I didn't come to Christ because I was a drug addict or because uh, bad things were going on. Great things are going on. As a matter of fact, when I gave my life to Christ, my friends thought I was a lunatic. They said, what are you doing? Because I walked away from certain things that were going to happen. And they said, man, you're going to be famous. What are you doing? They thought I was brainwashed. And I said, I am brainwashed by Jesus, <laughs> not by man. And uh, thank God he washed my brain and gave me a new trajectory. It gave me a new lease on life. Later on, many of those friends came to Christ. Later on, many of them understood, wait a minute, there's a lot more than fame and celebrity and skill and ability. There's a lot more in life than accolades and celebrations and partying and friends and girlfriends. There's something that only God can do, and that is he alone is the only one who could reach the deep recesses of our soul and heal that hole that is so deep and so wide and so, it's just so vast that only God could fill that hole in our heart. And so, what an amazing thing. So, the third thing I want to talk about is these people, meaning us, who he raised from the dead, it goes further. It tells us that the people that he raised from the dead, number three, presently sit with him. Somebody say, I sit with him. You are a dual citizen. Even though you're here on the earth, you're literally sitting with Christ in heavenly places. Don't ask me to explain this. I don't know if a subatomic physicist could explain this. You could be in two places at once. There's obviously a positional legal thing there. But he said that he raised us up and sat us with him. That's Ephesians 2, 4 in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so not only do we have a great story, not only were we once dead and now alive, God took these dead people and caused them to sit with him, meaning that we are now responsible as his stewards over what goes on on the earth. In other words, the church is glorious not just because we have a testimony based on what he delivered us from our past, but because of what we are called to do in the present and future, we are called to participate in the renewal of all things in representing his rule and his reign, which is why Jesus told us, the church, to pray for his kingdom or his reign to come on earth, even as it is in heaven. And so these dead people are now called to represent God's life, his power, his love, and his rule in our communities, in our families. Amazing. So it's enough if he just saved us. It's enough if he just took us out of darkness. But not only did he do that, he prepared us and equipped us to help him be stewards of his creation. Isn't that amazing? Going back to what he said in Genesis 1.28 to Adam, he told him to till the ground in chapter 2. And then in chapter 1, he said, I want you to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. 
In other words, I want you to be my steward of the earth. And so the glorious church is called to be the visible representation of the invisible God, to be the ones that represent his rule, to be the ones that are able to be his hands and his feet. As a matter of fact, he said in chapter 1 that he put all things under his feet, verse 22 and then 23, and he said he gave himself to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body. The church is his body. Incredible. It's not a building. People say, I'm going to church. What does that mean? There's no such thing as going to church. You are the church. The church is not a building. The church is not two hours on Sunday. You are the church. The church is his body. And then this is what he says. Why he classifies us as his body is because it says that we are the fullness of him who fills all in all. I am not making this up. You read it in your Bible, Ephesians 1, 23. We are his fullness, meaning we are his hands. We are his feet. If people want to see Jesus, they see the church. Matter of fact, John, in Revelation chapter 1, when he heard a voice that was speaking to him, he turned to look at that voice, and before he saw Jesus, he said he saw the seven golden candlesticks. And Jesus was in the midst. What are the seven golden candlesticks? It tells us later on in that chapter, they are the seven churches. Before people see Jesus, they see you. And that's an incredible, awful responsibility that we have to this world. Wow. That's incredible. And so we are his body. That's why he says we are a glorious church. We are the fullness of him. If he wants to help the poor, he's going to work through the church. If he wants to come up with innovation, he looks first to the church because we are the only ones in the world connected to the mastermind that created the laws of physics, the laws of lift. Uh, everything that we see was created by the one that we serve, Jesus Christ, and we are his body. He is the head. We are the neck down. That should affect you in business. You shouldn't just get a word of knowledge for somebody for their salvation. You should understand supernaturally how to do your business. You should be able to understand uh, problem-solving ability and how to deal with children, how to deal with and, and grapple with every aspect of life because there isn't natural law, there isn't science, there isn't mathematics, there isn't anything that is created or anything that we could see that Jesus himself didn't make. They came into being because of him. And because of that, he's our head. We're connected to the head. Because of that, we should have insight and be the leaders of culture in music, in art. As a matter of fact, there was a time when the world came to the church when they wanted to know how to write music. All the greatest musicians, Beethoven, Brahms, uh, every one of them, Bach, all of them wrote for the glory of God. Hospitals were started by, guess who, the church. All the universities were started by the church. Uh, 108 of the first 110 colleges in the United States were started by, guess who, the church. The church has started every important institution in this world, even though the world has co-opted most of them. 
and we've forgotten our history. Jesus called us the light of the world and the salt of the earth. He didn't call you the light of the church. He called you the light of the world. That means every aspect of culture is to be part of what we do and how we represent God in this world. A lot of times Christians think that when they come to Christ, they park their brain at the door when they come to church. But Jesus said, I want you to love God with your mind, not just your heart, which is why we are advocates for education and for filling everyone else's building, not just building our own buildings. We're called to participate in the renewal of all things, not just building up our church bodies. Does that make sense? And so he gave these death-doomed people the responsibility of stewarding the earth for him. Amazing. Here's a fourth reason why the church is glorious, according to the book of Ephesians. The body of Christ has the ministry DNA of Jesus. The ministry DNA of Jesus that was illustrated in the Gospels. It tells us in Ephesians 4, and I'm just going to run through this quickly. There's going to be a lot of things open-ended in this part of it because um, we just don't have enough time to dive into it. But I'm just going to bring it out briefly to be fair to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 4, 7, Paul says, grace was given to each one of us. Somebody say, that means me. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So everyone has received grace according to a measure of Christ's gift. And then it goes on to describe in the context that when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, gave gifts unto men. So when he ascended after walking on the earth for 40 days, that's when he gave these gifts. And then it says, for what purpose? He who descended is the one who ascended far above the heavens that he may fill all things. The reason why he gave these gifts to people in the church, to his bride, is so that, again, they may fill all things, not just church buildings. And it describes what these gifts are in verse 11. And he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And so what we see in the Gospels is that Jesus was apostolic, prophetic, shepherding. He was a shepherd. He was a teacher. And uh, he was a pastor. He was everything that was mentioned here, these five ministry gifts. And what Paul is saying is that each one of us have received this grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ, meaning the DNA that was in Jesus is now in us. Every one of us have one or two of these gifts. Some are called to be the spiritual leaders in the church. Others operate as apostolic leaders. They're entrepreneurial. They're pioneers. They create franchises as prophetic. They are future thinkers, futurists, uh, thought leaders. They're able to predict trends. They're able to understand what what is going to happen in the world. Even in the natural, we see people with a pastoral gift, people who are called to counsel, people in psychology. 
uh, people with the gift of teaching that are in the public school system or write manuals for, let's say, Honda or other uh, things. So they teach, they care for, they're entrepreneurs, they're prophetic. The DNA of Jesus is in the church. And that's why we are called glories. That's another reason why. Does this make sense? And then it says that these gifts were given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. What's the work of the ministry? It's not just Sunday in a building. The work of the ministry in the context, verse 10, to fill all things. In other words, every realm of society is to be filled with the Jesus DNA so that he gets glory and the world is reconciled back to himself. Does this make sense? So we're called to fill all things. That's to the world. That's our mission. But we're called to build the body of Christ. That's our call to our family. Every one of you have a part to play in each one of these two roles. To fill all things, that's the mission. But to build each other up. If we don't build each other up, if we're not committed to our local church, if we're not serving, helping to establish, loving those who come in, then we can never be the salt of the earth and the light of the world because we'll fall apart. And so it's so important that you understand the glorious church and the role that you have in it based on these passages. Number five, the body of Christ reveals the wisdom of God to the principalities and rulers of this world. Ephesians 3, verse 8 to 10. Paul says, through the church, the manifold, or many varied, wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places through the church. Isn't that amazing? And so Paul is making a statement that if I didn't read it myself and somebody preached it, I would think that you're crazy. How could you get more outlandish than this, that the principalities and powers, we're not just talking about low-level demons, we're talking about princes that rule nations and cities, principalities and powers. Uh, he doesn't elaborate whether they're fallen or they're good, so we could assume these are to good angels as well. The principalities, the high-level uh, angelic beings, both who are fallen and who are not fallen, are looking at you to discover the wisdom of God. That's what Paul just said. They are looking at the church. It says that the wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And so basically, the church, I'm going to collapse it down to this because I could say a lot more about this. We could bring in intercession and a lot of things, but... For the sake of time, I'm going to focus on one aspect of this. The church is a sign to the powers, to the powers in heavenly places that affect this world, but also to the rulers that are empowered by them. We know the prince of the power of the air works through earthly rulers. And if you read the newspaper, you could see that manifesting. If you look at TV, if you look at pop culture, you could see a lot of things that the dark forces are working through in our culture. And so what Paul is saying is that 
the church is wisdom to the powers and especially to these dark powers. I'm going to elaborate on this now. And when we think about history, we see how Satan tried to do various things after the fall of Adam. And one of the things Satan attempted to do was to unite all people groups through the Tower of Babel. How many has ever read that? Genesis 11. And God had to come down in Genesis 11:6 and stop them and give them diverse tongues so that they couldn't understand each other because he said, if I didn't stop them, nothing they attempted to do would be impossible. Satan tried to use humankind to build a tower that went up to heaven almost like an elaborate attempt to have a counter kingdom that would be under Satan that he would empower men to do. And he was almost successful in doing that in the Tower of Babel until God came and stopped it. Well, in the context of when this was written, Rome was the great power of this world. The Roman Empire is the greatest power the world had ever seen. If you want to check out some of the prophetic words that uh, talked about the main powers of the world, read Daniel chapter 2 and 7 and it predicts the Roman Empire, among uh, several others. And the Roman Empire was a combination of the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, and the Greek Empire. It had the power of all of them combined. So it was the greatest power the world had ever seen. And the Roman Empire had a goal of uniting every people group under Caesar. They had many gods. They had millions of gods, not just one god. They had many religions. They had many ethnic peoples. And they had a vast class society. 80% of the people in Rome were slaves. 20% were free. And so there was talk about the haves and the half-nots. Talk about not having a middle class. That was it. And so the Roman Empire was attempting to keep the peace and unite their empire by something. And they couldn't figure out how to do it. They couldn't do it through a religion because there were thousands of gods, millions of gods. They couldn't just do it by military might because they couldn't be everywhere at the same time. Uh, they couldn't do it through language because they developed, there was too many languages spoken. They couldn't do it through one ethnic group because it was a melting pot. There were so many different nations and people groups in Rome. And so the only thing they could think about that they thought would work would be emperor worship. And so starting with Augustus Caesar, they began to worship their emperor. And they commanded everybody in the emperor in the empire, to burn incense in worship of the Roman emperor. In every public festival and event, have images of Caesar everywhere. They even had the image of Caesar on the coins that they used. And in the back of that coin, it would say, son of God. Some coins it would say, king of kings and lord of lords. And so Caesar was the one way they thought they could unite the empire. And so they commanded everyone, I don't care what your God is, I don't care your economic status, I don't care if you're a Roman citizen, I don't care if you're a prisoner, 
You must worship Caesar if you're going to function in this empire. Well, the greatest proof that Jesus Christ is Lord and the greatest sign that there was only one true Caesar, one true potentate, one true king of kings, one true Lord and God, is that the church was able to bring together people who were slave and free from different ethnicities, from different backgrounds. The church was able to do that which Caesar was never able to do. As a matter of fact, by the 4th century, the Roman Empire started crumbling. And while the Roman Empire crumbled and the Babylonian Empire crumbled and the Persian Empire crumbled and the Egyptian Empire crumbled and every empire subsequently from that point on has crumbled and will crumble in the future, the kingdom of God continues to stand. The church will outlast every nation, every kingdom, every empire. That is the greatest sign one of the greatest signs we could say that Jesus is the true law because he was the only God, the only ruler, the only earthly ruler, and the only person who ever lived on the earth who is able to successfully bring people together. And it's lasted 2,000 years, bring people together under worshiping him. And if you turn around and look at who is sitting next to you, just the fact that you've come together is a sign to the powers. The politicians can't do this. The Republican Party can't do this. The Democratic Party can't do, can't do this. There is no philosopher who could do this. There's no other religious order that can do this. There is no system of government that can do this. The fact that you are here is a sign to the powers, a sign to every principality and power of darkness, a sign to the earthly rulers that there must be something to this Christian message. Why in the world are they all coming together? Why do they love each other irrespective of their background? Why in the world do they do life together irrespective of how their differences are so vast that in the world they would never even be friends. Never mind, do life together. That was one of the things that impressed me the most as a 19-year-old rocker, hair down to here, coming to church, walking in like this, you know, being insecure and tough at the same time, not wanting to bother with anybody. I was shocked. I saw black and white, rich and poor. I saw People from every group, so young and old people worshiping God together. And that blew my mind. I said, oh, my God, I don't know if this is true, but they think it's true. And that was my first step in the door was when I saw that unity in the church. I didn't realize it, but it is a major sign as well to the principalities and powers of the wisdom of God of who is really Lord. Last but not least, the church is glorious because it is the only body of people able to represent God and his overpowering might and victory in the epic battle between the forces of darkness and light. We are the only ones that are able to have victory over the forces of hell, not just in spiritual warfare, if you want to use that phrase, but in every aspect of culture, we have what it takes to overcome 
all odds, even things that are demonically inspired. That's why it tells us in Ephesians 6, verse 10, Paul says to the church, and this is to us, finally be strong in the Lord. I love that. And in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. God entrusted us with the power, the authority of the name of Jesus to represent him and resist the works of hell so that we could participate in the renewal of all things. And I can't finish this without quoting Ephesians 1. Paul wanted the church to understand this amazing power and authority. So he had a pause in the middle of writing this letter and pray for them. And part of the prayer found in Ephesians 1 is he prayed that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but that world which is to come. So he's saying that the same power that he put in Christ when he raised him over these dark forces, he says is the power he's given to us. Wow. I hope you understand today why you are part of a glorious church and why you should do everything you can to serve, to build up, and edify this local church. God bless you.